Yeehaw, hello and howdy. Thank you for joining us on the Canon Stats Podcast, the weekly Arsenal Analytics Podcast. I am Scott Willis, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Adam. Adam Boogie, how are you doing? Hey, good. I'm good, Scott. Sorry, I was re- readjusting my microphone. Yeah, um, it, it sounds wonderful for you to readjust your microphone for, for all of us. So that's a, just a, a great way to start. I'm really glad I did that while we were recording. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, I just switched over all of my notes stuff to, to one note and I was looking um, at the, you know, the, the copy over and I, I just realized how bad of a speller I am without the little red dots or the red squiggly lines that come under it. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I just copied over my previous notes from the, the podcast and it's like, wow, all of these spelling mistakes. Um, I know exactly what I mean when I write it. Um, but it's just a, a, I don't know how like people back in the day ever wrote anything without red squiggly lines to help them out. I don't know. I don't know. I, I can, I feel like I can barely write like two lines with a pen anymore without like my hand cramping up. Cause I'm just, I'm just used to typing everything now. So whether it's on a phone or on a computer, yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I try to keep little notebooks around with me, but I find myself not writing in them nearly as much as I would like to be able to do. Uh, I think the only thing I actually write these days is a shopping list to go shopping. Oh, I don't even, yeah, I don't even do that. Target app. <laughs> Target app. There you go. Yeah, that's that's where, you know, the Target's mothership is where you're at, right? Yep, we're the home. We're the home of Target among among many other illustrious companies that our our listeners may uh, may rely on for their daily needs. <laughs> the, the beautiful Midwest. It's a wonderful spot. Um you have a good Halloween and all that stuff. I'm doing everything I can to avoid switching over to talk about the the horribleness <laughs> that was the West Ham match. Apparently, yeah, no, I because that was was that the day after Halloween. Yeah, it was it was fun. It was cold here though. I didn't I didn't enjoy the cold. We uh, we have for those who don't know, I have two little kids, so we just walked the neighborhood until as long as we could. Um, but yeah, it's just I don't blame you. I don't you know people people. Uh, I don't think people are feeling too great about that game right now. Yeah. And I, and I know you had some work stuff, so it kind of kept you away from watching it live. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if you've got uh, major takes from the game. I think, I think my general spot where I'm at is that the first half was pretty good. Um, I think Arsenal pretty much dominated it overall. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of look at, you know, it's eight shots to zero. Um, you know, West Ham scored from a pretty fluke own goal mistake from Ben White. And, and basically did nothing else besides that. I don't think they really got into the box at all for Arsenal being able to do it. Um, it was just a kind of a, a good overall performance. And I think you could see like, you know, some of the players like Kai Havertz, I think his first half was one of the, the better half I'd seen. But then kind of as soon as the second half started, West Ham kind of came out hot. Uh, they had a, a big chance to Bowen and then uh, Kudos put it away to second goal. I think that just kind of ended it. Um, it kind of felt like Arsenal just quit. I don't know. That was kind of my impression. Yeah. And then after that second goal, it was kind of like, eh. I, I found yeah. myself, uh, you know, switching to other things and looking at other things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's about right. Like, uh, and, and this is something that I feel like we've seen the past couple of seasons with Arsenal where, I mean, you know, I don't think every fan loves it, loves to hear this, but I think some of the guys just... Uh, you know, you put out a lineup of like half pure bench players and maybe those guys don't play incredibly well. Um, for what it's worth, I thought most of them played quite well against Brentford in the last round. But then you put them out here for this game against West Ham and then it's half of those guys. Then it's the other half is is guys who are probably going to play on Saturday and they probably don't want to overdo it in this game. And, you know, they may not even really care that much. So once you get... I mean, sometimes in these like vibes sports, it's just like you get that one little break that goes the wrong way. And you know what? Maybe you call it mentally weak. You can call it whatever you want. But, um, you know, sometimes the players are just like shut off. Uh, You know, I mean, God knows how many times we heard that somebody didn't even get out of first gear in the Europa League group stage last season. And like the Europa League is a big deal for a lot of clubs. Like if you think Mm -hmm. that Bodo Glimt didn't treat Arsenal as a huge game. I mean, I got another, another uh, you got another thing coming, but like Martin Odegaard, Bukayo Saka, Gabriel Jesus, like these guys did not care about that. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I've had some Twitter conversations about it and the like, but, um, you know, part of the reason I don't have huge takes is because I, I think it'd be a mistake to take anything huge out of it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, not all games are equally meaningful in like the big picture. Um, we can definitely talk about, you know, should Arsenal have played better? Could they have played better? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think they played great. Um, but you know, I mean, as illustrated well by people like you and Mark R stats, like it wasn't exactly a three nil drubbing, uh, that no. Arsenal endured. Uh, three one, three one. Don't, don't forget the, the, yeah. the last kick of the, the game goal. Yeah, the last kick of the game goal, which of course, you know, in itself launched a, a sea of takes about moving Odegaard to the left, um, which, you know, is just never going to go away. So it's, you know what, it's just one of those things where I think the way I put it on Twitter was like, you know, kind of an aw shucks and move on moment. Um, Carabao Cup is, is like so many other cups, uh, maybe with the exception of FA in terms of like competitions that Arsenal play in. Obviously not Champions League, but um, just one of those competitions, I feel like, where people going into it act like, who cares? You know, put out the bench. Uh, I want Sago Jr. in there. I want Royal Walters in there. Um, And then, you know, you go out there and and you don't win it. And then people are upset about that. So I just I kind of feel like people pick a lane. Do you want to do you want to win the Carabao Cup? Do you not want to win the Carabao Cup? Do you not care? Do you care? if Manchester United win this cup or, or do we suddenly say it's not a big deal anymore? I don't but, know. Cause they did win the cup last year. And last season. Did, yeah. Yeah. They're did, out did now. Anybody but... care? Yeah. I mean, if Spurs win this, are we going to be like, wow, Spurs, congratulations on the huge season. Oh, they, I, mean, they're I don't know if they're out too, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're if not Newcastle win this. If like, if Newcastle win it, I think it's a pretty big deal for them since they haven't. Actually, I think it's an interesting one. Like if Chelsea win this and like they win this cup, but they finish eighth place, like, are they going to look back at this and think, yeah, that was a successful season. We ended with silverware. We're doing good. No, I think they're going to be more upset that they finished eighth place. Um, Like, I think that is just like of all of the cups, like this is the one that I don't think matter at all. Like and I think if you kind of were even to like think about like which ones, especially for a, a top six, top seven club, which ones, which competitions would actually, you know, if you win them, you feel good about your season. I don't think an FA Cup even rises to that occasion for most of the actual big team. Like it's an absolutely wonderful day out. You have great memories. You have a parade. You do all those kinds of things. But I don't think a, an FA Cup win generally turns a bad season into a good season. No. Um, it can, you know, it's kind of like a cherry on the you know top of a Sunday type of a thing, but the Sunday mm-hmm. part is what actually matters with that. So I think, you know, thinking about like for Arsenal, the, the things that would actually change things to it, to being a, a good season, like if, you know, if we won the champions league, right, I, mean, I don't really care what else happens in the league. Like we could finish in, in 17th place and just barely stay up. But if we won the champions league, yeah, I think we'd all be quite happy. Right. If it was literally 17th place. We'd probably also be upset too. <laughs> we'd be, um, yeah. <laughs> but if it was like, if we came in, if, if, yeah, if we came in fifth place or if we came in fourth place and won the champions league, I, I think we would be quite happy with it. Um, yeah, if we crashed out be. of the group stage of the champions league, but won the premier league, I think we would, you know, we'd be, you know, momentarily mad with crashing out, but I think we'd look back and say, yeah, that was a successful, successful season. But mm-hmm. I don't think either of these, you know, the FA Cup, the League Cup, even the Europa League for a top seven team are ones that rise to the occasion of saving a season or turning a bad season into a good season. Right. Yeah, that's and th- and that's kind of what I've struggled with with a lot of the the conversation. I know that, you know, there's been talk. Uh, over the past few days of people saying like no cups and Arsenal never haven't, you know, haven't won any cups the last few seasons. I've had a few people tell me that if Arteta doesn't win a cup this season, he needs to get fired, all this stuff. And I'm like, well, that's, that's the problem with that thinking is that exactly what you just said. I don't think you can look at an FA cup or a Carabao cup as a club who is like a top four or five odds on favorite for the champions league. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bet makers putting them most typically in either second or third in the Premier League. I don't think you can look at just like in a vacuum having won one of those cups and being like, you know what, good season, because it's gonna, it's still gonna depend on the other elements of that. Now, Arsenal don't need to win the Champions League to do to have a good showing in the Champions League, but mm-hmm. but that is a big enough competition. And same with the Premier League, I think you can have a good showing in it with this all of this context without winning. Um, but 
yeah, it's just, it's just like you said, it's not, it's not saving anything. So that's, I think that's, what's been kind of like, I don't know, almost, almost like off putting about the reaction from some people is I just feel like this has been a more highly criticized uh, result than some of the things we've seen happen in, like in the league. Yeah. And I can get the frustration, right? Like this was not like, especially seeing like the team kind of quit on the game. Like that was a bit frustrating and like, you know, sad, but it's like, yeah, kind of understand like, you know, you're, you're two goals down. And like when you're two goals down, like that kind of means the game's over. Like, I mean, I know it's like literally not, but like the win probability for West Ham was probably pushing 80% at that point. Right. Like it's, it's yeah. over. Like, I mean, in a game, you're not how much yourself to win. Right. And like, how much do we like, do we throw the dice to try to give everything out for this game? I, you know, we brought on, you know, basically three, you know, starting quality or four starting, starting quality guys in here. And we tried to turn it around and it just didn't quite work out. But I think one of the other things too, is that like, if we had switched, you know, kind of the, the focus here and like we put out a strong lineup for West Ham and rotated and put this lineup out for Newcastle, like, would the people that are mad about going out in this cup, like be okay with that? Like, is that the trade-off that you would like to see? I think it's more of like people get mad when people, when we lose, but no one would have been like happy if we won or like given this like great performances. Like we saw people discounting a big win against Sheffield United because they're a bad team. Like, I don't think anybody would come away if like Arsenal had won, you know, four or five nil, in this game thinking, Oh yeah, this was a, a huge, great victory. Like thing, like, I don't know, you'd get even more heavily discounted than the league win against Sheffield United. Yeah, no, I hundred percent. I, I just, uh, I think, I think just on some level, you know, you can have a coexistence between a mindset of, you know what? I, I want to win. I like before that game picked off, I wanted, I wanted Arsenal to win. Of course I did. Yeah. You know, I never I, want Arsenal to lose. No, the, I, the, the perfect scenario is that, you know, you send out Fabio Vieira and Emil Smith Rowe and those guys light it up and Eddie gets a couple of goals and doesn't have to start on Saturday and all of that good stuff. But you know, when, when that doesn't happen because West Ham has basically their starting midfield in the game because they're suspended for the weekend um, and also started, I think half of their regular defenders, they started Jared Bowen. Um, it was, it was very close to a first unit West Ham team, despite having a game this weekend. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and stamp my feet and say, you know, this is unacceptable that we couldn't win that game with Kivior and, and, and kind of the rest. Uh, I, you know, I think you have some individual performances that were disappointing. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, it just doesn't, what does it mean for Arsenal? I just think it's very little at this stage. Yeah, and so there's a, there, a new the NBA is trying something new, and it feels like they're trying to import these cup competition type of things into the NBA, yeah. and I, I I feel like it's going in a weird spot because it feels like in soccer that yeah they've had these cup competitions forever, but it feels like the value and the importance of them is dropping significantly, and it's like I don't know if the NBA notices that it would be it would be like similar to like if the Premier League tried to import the All Star Game, like yeah the the All Star Game is a you know a thing in American sports, but people just don't care about mm-hmm. it as much anymore, yeah. and it just it feels like it's something that is already pretty heavily devalued. Like even, you know, you think about teams now that, you know, Manchester city is out of it. Um, now that Manchester United is out of it. Now that Arsenal are out of it, are, are these teams like West Ham that are still in this going to take this even more seriously? Like, no, I think they're still going to like prioritize the premier league because that is the, the match, you know, the, the league that actually matters for people. And it's just, it's, it ends up in this weird kind of middle ground of a, a you know, a, match that has importance but really isn't like i don't know it's 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 one that i think the team just i think everybody knew that this match was the the lowest priority of the matches we have this month yeah completely it's it's it seems pretty clear to me um and without without heavily you know they do they do what they can to incentivize winning the competition you know linking it to european qualification obviously there's money Um, but, but I think as we've touched on, like the clubs that are getting those things with or without the Carabao, uh, cup in their trophy case. Um, yeah, it's just like, okay, I already had that, you know, it's like, it's like saying if, if they did this in-season tournament in the NBA and saying like, okay, 
uh, if you win, you're automatically in the playoffs. Like, do you think the Phoenix Suns are going to be like, oh boy? No, they're going to be like, we we already wanted to win the West. Like, we're we're not going to go any harder for that competition um, because of that incentive. So it's it's tough, you know, the whole concept of of international cups and cups, uh, domestic cups. I think very similarly to the all-star game. I feel like the all-star game in baseball in particular used to be like your chance to see players that you rarely Mm -hmm. got to see. When Um, when the game was a lot more regional, you only saw your own local team or when they came into town. Like, so this was like the chance for everybody to do it. Right. Yeah. And it's still, it's still a big deal here in America. Like if your city hosts the all-star game, which, you know, that happened in Minneapolis three, four years ago. Um, and you know, the town showed out and a lot of people had fun with it, but you know, the TV experience was the same as it is every year and people don't really care anymore. So it's, as the world gets smaller, stuff like that gets harder to really, you know, kind of prop up and, and make, it's, it's tough to make people care about stuff. I guess. That's yeah. Funny. And, and I think the league cup too is especially cause so it's, it's not as historic. It doesn't have the breadth of uh, the FA cup. Mm-hmm it's like, what's the point of this? It feels like it's kind of squeezed in into matches that are into windows that, you know, teams would rather rest, um, especially with the other priorities that they have going on. Yeah. It it, it feels like a a competition that needs a a total rethink for what its place is and what its purpose is for being able to do it. And, you know, those kinds of things like I'm not really sure what there is that you can tie to it that would make teams actually care about it. Yeah, I mean, I I would I would never expect it, but I I think I'm more on the side of like abolish the FA Cup yeah. or sorry the EFL Cup, um, because there just really aren't other prominent examples of uh, local football authorities having multiple domestic competitions throughout the season. So that said, it's it's you know they've got their deal here locally with ESPN. I don't know who broadcasts it overseas but you know there's still money to be made so good luck getting rid of it right yeah it's almost never something that you take games off of the calendar these days always more more inventory more things to sell yep all right i think that's enough of the west ham game it's a it's a match that that happened it sucked uh yeah i don't think that we learned anything did you learn anything from the match that you didn't already kind of know previously is there like any like breaking takes that you have from it well, you know, I not not especially, um, you know, I saw someone make the point uh, today that, you know, this is almost this is very similar to the timing um, and importance of last season's loss uh, at the Emirates to Brighton in the EFL Cup, which I think was right before the World Cup started. Um, and that I think that's just a good point. Like I didn't even I had for I literally had forgotten that game happened. I know it wasn't televised, but I literally had forgotten Arsenal went out and lost to Brighton in the same competition a year ago. Um, Another very, very passing take is uh, I think people have been a little bit too easily impressed by the Kudus uh, performance, because I think if you pay real attention to West Ham, you would know that that, that game is probably about 90% of his season highlights so far. So, (laughs) you know, maybe just calm down. Uh, I know people wanted him anyways, and I do rate the player, but you know, just what, what a player has done in one game is not representative always of their body of work. Cause I think he's, he's struggled for West Ham at times. So, um, you know, just be aware of that as people pump that guy up for what was yeah. a very good goal. I mean, I mean, I think of any of the players that I came away impressed from West Ham, it was more Jared Bowen than anyone else on that team. Um, who I thought looked pretty good as like the, the striker mode really, I think he's actually kind of filled that pretty nicely. Cause I think Mikel Antonio is starting to show his age and some of those things. And I think yeah, the switch to, to Jared Bowen more as the the striker type or, you know, a guy that has played much more centrally this year for, for West Ham has been a, a nice revelation for them. Yeah. Gives them a way to fit in all their signings too. So that's, that's obviously a very pleasant uh, development for David Moyes. Cause I was wondering how in the world he was going to play Paqueta and, and uh, Bowen and Kudas all together. So, so but yeah. figuring it out. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I think, and I think West Ham too are a pretty solid team. Um, I don't want to, you know, like look past them too much like that. Yeah. They're a, a solidly above average team. Honestly, like if you had to pick a, a neutral site, West Ham versus Manchester United right now, I, I, I think it would be a lot closer than what you would uh, have thought based on just the, the team names. I mean, yeah, just, I, 
I think if you if you throw them in a vacuum and on current form and everything, yeah, I would I would pick West Ham to win that. Yeah. Um, Manchester United are so messed up right now, um, and you know Casemiro now has an injury, and it's just everything is going wrong for them, which is great. I love it. Like let's yep. be clear, it's but, delightful. Yeah, we we love to see a sputtering big six side that is not Arsenal. All right. I think that's enough for that. So let's let's switch gears here to another story that is on people's lips. So there's a an ITK that's you know come out today with the the, the club saying Emil Smith Rowe is not injury prone, but that it actually brought into something that we want to talk about last week that we pushed off, and I think this helps us to kind of give us a good uh, jumping off point. Like, do we think that any of our players are injury prone? Is there something more to it? So let's start with uh, Emil Smith-Rowe. So it was just uh, announced that why he missed the the match here against West Ham was that he has himself a a new knee injury. And so this is now a a new problem for him that is now going to keep him sidelined for a while. There's no real timeline for his return, but it is probably a while with this injury. Yeah, I mean, I'd only seen weeks, which... What I would I would think at least until you know Brentford at the end of the month at the very soonest, um, that's that's only still like one or two games I think, but or three I guess, but um, you know that seems like it that's probably on the low end. So yeah, I mean you feel terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I think I think that's that's something that gets lost when people want to talk about like the value of players and you know, their role and how effective they've been is like, you know, while I might crap on Mikhailo Mudrick every chance I get, like, I'm not, I don't want the guy to have a, a serious injury problem or anything like that. And even, even less so when it's my own player. Right. So, so I love Emil Smith Rowe. I think, I think it's been so long since we've seen anything to really get super excited about with him, which sucks because, you know, that first half of that, uh, that 19, sorry, 2021 season when he scored those 10 goals like that, that was like, that felt like his like coming out season. Uh, then kind of over the second half of it, he just faded. He picked up, I think there was an injury that cost him some time in that season too. And it's just. Yeah. He had a, a pair of injuries that it looked like in the 1920 season. Well, actually the both of them were early in the year though. So at least from the, the transfer market uh, information. So we had a, a head injury that kept him out for two weeks and uh, the first of the the groin injuries that kind of also kept him out for about two weeks. Yeah. So it's just, you know, I, I think that, I think that it's, it's always, it feels like it's always kind of a dicey conversation about whether players are injury prone or not, because, um, you know, I made the point recently that um, I would be really interested to see whether people would call Yuri and Timber injury prone if he came back at the beginning uh, or end of the season, beginning of last season, and maybe within like a month of the season, picked up a hamstring and missed four weeks or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. would you call, would you call that player injury prone? I think there's, it's a good question because when you have one injury that dominates so much time and then maybe like one other one um, versus like, I, th- I think with Smith Rowe, it's a little bit more apparent, right? There's been a history of missing time, you know, going back to like being out on loan at Red Bull Leipzig and, and missing a lot of that. And um, yeah, I was looking at this the other or today too. So just the, the percentage of minutes that he's played. So he played only 1% of the available minutes while he was in the Bundesliga. So like that was a, a total shot loan move that sucked. Um, even in the championship where he played more regular, he still only played 28% of the available championship minutes at, at Huddersfield. And then with Arsenal in the Premier League, he's played 21% of the minutes. And that's not all down to injury, obviously. Like that's some of it is he's been you know, just, just selection choice. But he's just been to a bit peripheral overall for his career so far. Yeah, I mean, he he really has. And and if you think that the reason that he's been peripheral is that, you know, he's he's been uh, not benefiting from, you know, like the proper treatment from Arteta, which some people think that for this season, but it, it does seem like on some level when you have a player in this situation, I mean, they're, they're, you're going to have some difficulty uh, trusting that player moving forward. Um, it seemed like even when he was reportedly at full, at full fitness throughout the beginning of the season, that maybe there were some hints in Arteta's commentary that were saying like, you know, the fitness is not, what we need basically. Um, I think one of his comments from the past day or two was, was that basically like we were starting to see the Emil that we need again. 
Um, and that's, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's down to the player or if it's just down to like bad genetics that makes his body, you know, uh, more prone to breaking down when it's stressed, when it's put to the test like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's always one thing. It's always something. Um, and you know, nobody wants that to be the case, but that doesn't change the reality. Yeah. And it's one of those, like, it's, uh, injuries are hard to predict, but the best predictor of injuries is previous injury history. So it is one of those things, like, once you kind of start getting some of these, they tend to have knock-on effects of, you know, you're going to have reoccurring ones or even other ones that are sort of connected that will lead to you change your way that you play to be able to do it. I think that's where you kind of saw, you know, uh, both uh, Rams, Aaron Ramsey and Jack Wilshire kind of like suffer from that. Like, you know, both had some, some ankle type of things and that led to, you know, maybe hamstrings and other muscular problems and being able to do that. Um, it's just a, a tough one. I think that kind of, you know, dovetails nicely into to Thomas party. Like, right. I was going to say, when you, yeah. When you, when you kind of think about, you know, his history coming in um, from uh, at Letty, like he didn't have a ton um, of stuff there. Right. I'm, so I'm looking yeah. here. He had a, a, a hamstring injury in 1516, uh, you know, a hamstring injury in 1921 or 1920. And, and that's kind of it. And then even that one, uh, the late one was only a, a week type of hamstring. So really didn't miss a ton when you kind of think of hamstring, you think, you know, that's a, a classic three to six weeks type of deal. Um, but then with Arsenal, it's been muscle injury after muscle injury um, and just all sorts of problems. So, you know, uh, hamstrings, thighs, groin, all sorts of things just kind of going back to back. Like, does that, you think party is now going into the, the injury prone? And like, do you think that this is something that, you know, should have known kind of going into this? I mean, I don't know how I don't know how you could have known um, mm-hmm. if you if you examine the player thoroughly as part yep. of the as part of the 50 million pound transfer, like which they would have. Uh, I just, you know, like, I, I mean, I have I have family members who have had all kinds of medical issues and you can't you, some of them you can see coming and some of them you can't. So um, with, I feel like with party and, you know put to put like a red asterisk on the screen like these are not medical professionals right but <laughs> i uh i've always kind of felt like like with him he's one of these guys similar to, to the, the 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 people that you named who've played for arsenal that um you know it starts and it just once it starts it doesn't stop anymore um and yeah i mean you can get him you can get him on the pitch for 25 to 30 starts and maybe a few bench appearances every season but once the demands go beyond that, uh, that's where you're going to start having problems. So, you know, what do you do with a player like that? I think you do what Arsenal did. You buy somebody who is really good and give them the job and find a way to use the other guy when you can. Um, because, yeah, I just with with Party and, and unfortunately, it seems like with Smith Rowe, I just don't know that you're ever going to be able to to say, um, you know, this is a player that will be there the full season as needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this is one that is really, I think, disheartening this year. And this is, you know, Gabriel Jesus, who has now missed uh, with, you know, two separate injuries this year. So he had the, the knee injury right at the, the start of the year to clean up from the previous knee injury that he had last year. And then just coming back and he was looking really good. And he also suffers a hamstring injury, uh, mixed reports again on how bad and how long that one is. Um, you know, potentially, you know, uh, probably through November, maybe if things go right, he can come back a, a little bit sooner. Although some reports also saying, you know, not until December as well. But I was, I was looking at this and, you know, I think we, we like to, to harp on Thomas Party, uh, the availability, not missing games. And, you know, Thomas Party has been with the club longer, but he's he's played only 56 percent of the available minutes. Um, Gabriel Jesus now in uh, a little bit over uh, a year has played 56% of the available minutes, um, which is just really unfortunate for two guys that we think are absolutely key. But should we start worrying about Jesus to the same level that we worried about Thomas Vardy? For for me, it's a no. Okay. Um, Not not to the party level. No. Uh, And here's why. I think I think. it, it ties into what I said a little bit ago about Timber. Um, I mean, Timber's going to end the season having played probably, I mean, maybe if things go well, like 20% of av- available minutes, right? 
if he if he comes back next season and gives us 10, 10 weeks of health and then picks up a hamstring uh, and misses a month, are you going to say, well, this guy's injury prone? Or are you going to say, God, that's bad luck coming back from his catastrophic injury? So, I mean, if 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 Gabriel Jesus gave us a season where he does miss like two months in total, um, am I going to call him injury prone? Probably not. Uh, but he missed three months because of one injury last season. Yeah. Uh, and then so I don't know. another month with that same, you know, going to clean up yeah, on that same injury, a tr- like an aftershock of the same injury. So I think if I, if I remember correctly, it's not like he was never injured at Manchester city. Um, yeah. people, and people so I'm look- pulling this from transfer market here. Um, so here's what we kind of see here. So we have a, a torn knee ligament in 1718. So another knee injury that certainly took him out quite a bit. We got a, a groin strain, hamstring, hamstring, and then a couple kind of just uh, knocks, which are always wonderful and descriptive. Yes. So you look at that and you say, okay, well, uh, catastrophic knee injury, um, which I tend to pull like all of the big, like two month plus knee problems into. Um, oh, he also had a fractured foot, which, you know, a metatarsal fracture, which is a uh, not a good one, but also more of a catastrophic injury rather than a, right. to me, I, I kind of like, let me get your thoughts on this one. So to me, I think injury prone is more along the lines of reoccurring muscular injuries. I think so, those are the yeah. ones that, that absolutely do it. Like these, uh, you know, you tear a, a tendon, you tear a, you break a bone, something like that. I'm more inclined to say that that's a, a freak kind of injury that could happen to almost anyone at any time. Yeah. Or like, I, I remember having conversations about Victor Oshman um, being, injury prone uh when his injury quite literally was that he broke his broken eye socket right yeah um which you know i'm not i'm not gonna call a guy injury prone for breaking his bones unless unless it's because he's like he's just very clumsy or like you know when i was a kid i fell and broke my arm but i was doing something stupid to set it up so like yes that's on that's me but but if he's doing something that everyone else does i mean you know uh, so I, I guess, I guess my question with him is going to be, you know, if, when he comes back, uh, for the rest of the season, is, is he going to continue to pick up little injuries here and there? Um, is he going to give us a run of three consecutive seasons where he's missing a month here and a month there and a month here. And then all of a sudden he's out for the rest of the season, because that's my experience with Thomas party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's had all of this missed time, but. Um, it's just been like, it's been the accumulation of multiple things. So that, that's to me more what, where I start to like flip that switch to like, this guy's injury prone, this guy can't be counted on. Um, so it's, I mean, it's almost like, it's almost in some ways, it's like too small of a sample with yeah used to really say, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's never easy too because the, the clubs don't give out this information because it's, you know, uh, protected private information. So yeah. everybody is uh, making inferences from very imperfect things, but that doesn't stop us from trying to make imperfect inferences from things. So, yeah. all right. So I think we, we came through uh, Smith Rowe, injury prone, not injury prone. I mean, I would, I would say he's injury prone. I, I kind of lean that way too. Um, although I, I might give him the the caveat that it might be one injury that kind of went together and maybe it's fixed, but if I, I guess let's get a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. If time, if time can tell, if time can show uh, that this groin injury that caused a lot of his missed time really was surgically fixed and, and, you know, he came back and can maintain fitness um, and just pick up injuries here and there, like, to a relatively normal extent, I would reconsider my statement for sure. But I think, right. I think as things stand. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. Uh, Thomas party injury prone, not injury prone. Absolutely. Injury prone. I'm, I'm going to throw a new one here at you. Um, Cause I saw this one at the, the end of last year, uh, Takahiro Tamiyasu injury prone or not injury prone. I, th- I have not seen enough proof that he is injury prone to call him that. I think yeah, that, this, this one kind of falls in that, like the catastrophic knee injury um, that they missed a lot of games. Yeah. I mean, he slipped. What? <laughs> he, he was fine. The season, like the season leading up to that, once he came back and he was fit, he was fine. He wasn't getting hurt. Has he gotten hurt this season? No, he's played quite a bit. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't seem to remember him having a long injury history at Bologna either. 
and I, there are a few things at least uh listed here so he's got uh, a hamstring injury that took him out for you know about 60 70 days here um and then he had the calf injury his first season with arsenal that also yeah. took him out for about 60 days i would you know i framed it in the way of uh like talking about whether you would want to extend him mm-hmm. and and i i just said uh, at the time i said if he can get through this season without having kind of those recurrences of, of those little nagging injuries, then I probably would strongly consider extending his contract. But if he, if he comes through the end of the season and he's missing four games here and five games, there, kind of like he has uh, over the first two seasons, or if he misses a big stretch, then I think you'd have to really give that some thought. Yeah. And I think knock on wood, things are positive right now. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't seem to have any fitness problems. He never, I, I think he sat out a, an international break at one point this season, if I remember correctly, but uh, I think he was on the last one and he played well. I remember people making clips of him playing center back and saying like, this guy should be the Saliba cover, which I think he is anyway. But um, yeah, I, th- I think, I think at this point I would lean no. Uh, okay. just Cause I, f- I feel like that, that calf injury was so just so kind of nebulous the first season where people were just getting frustrated and treating that like he was re-injuring it over and over again when really he just never got back to fitness as quickly as they thought he would yeah what about uh alexander zinchenko i knew you're gonna ask not a prone. i knew you were gonna ask zinchenko i i probably i feel like i probably would call him injury prone yeah i'd lean that way too yeah it's because it's the same thing right it's the the similar kind of muscle stuff kind of coming back over and over and this is the one even at manchester city like yeah like he was behind usually another player if it was you know uh you know cancelo or you know even was it Kolarov was there before him at the the same time i'm trying to remember back when he even joined them yeah but but it was a similar kind of thing it's always seemed like he was you know having some sort of muscular kind of uh thing that you know, yeah. would, you know, it was kind of a nagging one that, you know, kept him out, not for long, long stretches, but, you know, uh, three to five game stretches. Yeah, you plan if with Zinchenko, I think you and, and I think people knew this when he was signed, but you you plan for him to miss probably like 10 games to 15 games a season with injury, um, which is, you know, which is fine. Um, and I'm talking about league games, so it's not great, but it is what it is. Yeah. Anybody else that I'm missing that you're jumping out to you? Uh, Reese Nelson, injury prone. Yeah, I, I think Reese Nelson is the has bad injury luck and is injury prone. Like he has horrible timing with when he picks up his injuries. Yeah, he does. He does. He he really could have uh, last season. He really could have come in handy um, at times. And you know, this season I think he's been mostly fit. But um, again, it's we don't know because we haven't really had to play him very much. Um, but I, I would call, I mean, that that's another one like Smith Rowe that goes back to like youth times too, where it just seems like there's always something going on. Um, so yeah, I think I would say injury prone on him. All right. I think that's a, a good spot to, to end part one. Um, so we'll do some housekeeping here. This show is supported by our much appreciated premium subscribers where you'll get at least five additional articles per month, additional premium podcasts. I just did one with John McKenzie yesterday, which uh, I think is worth a listen. You also get our everlasting gratitude um, to help us support the things that we do. So if you want to interest in doing that, we appreciate it. Um, next on my list here is talking about duels. Um, yeah. This is one that has come up over and over again, and I've got a little bit of a, a bugbear with it. Um, what, what's your take on on duels, Adam? Good, I mean, bad. You, you should good metric. you should win them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's I, I I think I think that um, what I've seen of your take on this, Scott, I, I have mostly agreed with. So I'm interested. I want to I want to hear about your your thoughts before I go into this too deeply. So I, I like the idea of duels, um, and I think that they're a good metric. I think that the aggregation of duels is where I get more of the, the things that I'm mad at. Um, so you'll see just duels overall added together. So that would be both air duels and ground duels. And mm-hmm. I think that is weird because those are obviously very different skill sets. And then even inside of you know air duels and ground duels, those ones being added together frustrate me in the sense that you know, uh, attacking and defensive duel, you know, in both, you know, in the air or on the ground are also very different. And I think it hides some important information to aggregate them together. Um, we know that 
where you are dueling uh, matters significantly for how often you're going to win it. So, you know, trying to dribble into the box is significantly harder than trying to, you know, dribble one-on-one wide. Um, you have more congested, less space, being able to do it. More players generally kind of getting into your area to be able to do it. And it's like, mm-hmm. those aren't the same kind of things. And then it's the same thing, right, when you're trying to win a duel. Uh, winning a duel one-on-one in midfield when you're isolated is a lot harder than winning a duel when somebody's coming at you and you've got four guys around you. Um, yeah. So to me, like they're, they're different skills that are being kind of hidden because I think there is a great value in being able to, to, to do that. And it's something I, I look at very closely, like how often does a player win their attempted dribbles to being able to do it? How often does a player win the tackles that they actually go um, and challenge against? I think these are very important metrics, but I think there's some of the stuff that gets hidden when you combine them together overall. So that, that's kind of my take overall. I think even the, the aerial duels as well, right? Uh, winning a, you know, a lofted ball when you're the defender at the halfway point is a lot easier than being the, uh, the offensive guy who you know, generally has your, your back to things and you're trying to, to win the position and do those kinds of things. So yeah, yeah. I think the, there's a little bit of stuff that gets uh, hidden when you combine them. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a perfectly like logical way to look at it. It's it's feels a lot like a like a number of these statistics, if you can call them that, that that kind of like circulate because people understand what the words mean. And and they're in the the apps really easily um, and they're yeah. pretty prominent in there. And I, I have no problem with that, but I just think that if I was to give you know them some product advice, I would um, tell them to kind of separate them, even if it's more just like the attacking and defensive duels. Because even yeah. if you want to think like attacking aerial duels and attacking you know ground duels, combine them together. Like to me, like that's closer than combining everything together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Or, or um, yeah, like area area of the pitch, I think is a good point because you know we've seen players like. Like, for example, Ben White, who um, he when he was playing center back, I think he had, you know, like slightly below average aerial dual win rate. But then you put him at right back and, you know, like I would say that's that's a strength of his. Like he's going to win those balls that get played. So it it, it doesn't matter. Like uh, every position has different demands and they're the duels that they're getting into are different. Um, and and like I think another another good example of this is is Ivan Tony. Mm-hmm. Um, where he's got this like immense aerial duels one rate, but if you watch the tape, um, and I'm not saying that he's not good in the air. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say that there's a lot of like repetition in what kind of aerial duels he gets into, and they are they are also duels where he's put it put at an advantage by uh, the goal kicks that he's coming out to to head down. So it's yeah, it's one of those things where it's it's. Uh, somewhat informative but i think you you just can't like pull that out of the context and say like this is my standalone st- it's it kind of reminds me of, like field tilt you can't say uh you can use it to say okay yeah this player won a lot of duels but you can't use it to say wow this player had an amazing game because they won nine duels out of 13 like it it matters what time in the game it was what where they were in the pitch who they were dueling against like you said what were they the attacker the defender um, because you might win nine out of thirteen duels as the center back for Sheffield United when they lose five nil. Um, yeah, when when somebody's lofting in crosses into the box, that's a a lot easier duel to contend with as a center back versus you know even a you know one on one at the the halfway line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one might be a, a one that you expect to win seventy percent of the time. One might be more of a you know a sixty forty type of a, a duel. Yeah, exactly. So it's it, it's just a it's such a murky area like for the numbers. And I, I recently saw, um, and I really appreciated, like, uh, I think I believe it was Opta in their radar template um, for center backs. They had on ball value, but like, I think, I think, I think the, the stats, the stats bomb. Yeah. Popped out the, the stats new bomb. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They, uh, but, but I appreciated one thing about it, which well, among other things, but one thing I really liked was that even just within the con- the context of, or the, like the category of on ball value, they had, I think they had three different metrics, um, in the same radar that like on ball value, passing on ball value, dribbling and carrying. Um, and just, I think, I think we need to like, and they, I think they had one for the, the defensive, uh, disruption type of metric yeah. as well, which was yeah really nice to see. And I think that's how you have to do it rather than trying to pool it all up into one because they're like, they're just going to be different scenarios. Like you're never 
like you you posted today that um, the the relation between duels won and and points per game and yeah. really found that there wasn't a direct uh, correlation there when you look at yeah everybody. there's a there's a weak I think uh, positive correlation but I, I wouldn't use it as a, a massive uh, thing to input inside of my you know metrics right but you wouldn't you wouldn't take it a step further and say uh, putting a heavy emphasis on winning duels is not a good strategy as a manager right so it's it just it depends it depends what what is your style of play um what you know which part of the the pitch are you instructing the duel like the players to engage all of this sort of thing so like a, a, a club who plays a style of arsenal like a ball very very dominant on the ball and looking to win the ball back quickly when you do lose it i think you know you might see a stronger correlation with them whereas if you're looking at you know five three to play out of the back direct passing that club may not have such a high uh correlation especially because they're probably going to lose like all of the their attacking duels because that's just their style um but they're probably going to win a lot of defensive ones so absolutely they're also going to be 19th on the table <laughs> all right uh speaking of duels we have newcastle away this weekend in a, a yeah. big match newcastle are an interesting team um yeah. I'm not sure totally what to make of them. The The metrics that I, I like to look at paint them as potentially the third best team in the Premier League, um, maybe even up there with Arsenal, somewhere in that range of yeah. uh, you kind of have Liverpool, Arsenal, Newcastle, and they're all kind of in the similar kind of range um, for the, the team ratings. Um, but they've gotten there in a, a weird way. Um, typically teams that, play or put up the similar kind of metrics to them uh, will will dominate more of possession, um, more of the territory. So they have a relatively low percentage of entries into the box or even entries into um, within 25 yards of goal. And they still have just been incredibly efficient at turning that minimal possession into massive, massive shots. So they lead in non-penalty goals this season. They're, I think, also leading in non-penalty XG. They have the highest XG per shot. And all of these from just kind of mediocre shot numbers overall. So I don't know, Adam, what, yeah. what do you take of Newcastle here? I mean, it, it, it's a little bit scary because I think in some ways you've just like, you've described the perfect foil to Arsenal in <laughs> Premier League play. Uh, a club who can take um, not that many touches, not that much possession in the final third and turn it into... Um, a very efficient number of goals and chances. I think that's just, that's kind of the scary opponent for Arsenal. And I, I think in the past I've thought of Brentford as being that because they, mm -hmm. they're another club that, you know, is kind of that they get it down the pitch and, and like something happens. They're, they're, they're creating chances when they do that, even though they don't do it that much. Uh, and, and that kind of all adds up and puts them high up on the table. So it's, it's interesting you know, because on some level, I mean, I think they're what seventh in the Premier League, sixth, um, but they're they're like a, there's a solid gap between Aston Villa and them, uh, five points right now, and mm -hmm. you know they they went out and beat the pants off of PSG four one, and I think that that got a lot of people's kind of ears perked up about them, but like you go you go look at the like the stats behind that game, it's crazy. Like they they had point nine three or point nine four xg to PSG's point nine three. Uh, twenty-seven percent possession in a game that they won four to one. Uh, they took twelve shots, and four of them were goals. Just uh, some really, really crazy stuff. Um, interestingly, like even even if you look at that game, this isn't like uh, exceptional striker play that's doing this for them. They're getting they get goals seemingly every game from defenders and from midfielders, um, which you know it's going to be really, really interesting to see if they can keep that up um, because like I, I, Isak, I think is one of the leaders in the premier league in getting XG. But I, if I recall, um, especially against like the, the bigger clubs this season really has not been a huge, hugely impactful player. Uh, so it's just, they're, they're a tough, they're, they're tough to, to really understand. Honestly. Yeah, so I'm trying to check here. Is, uh, is there any update on Isaac uh, injury news coming back? I feel like the uh, last thing I saw was that he wasn't going to play. Yeah, I do see uh, Isaac Murphy, Elliot Anderson all 
out for now. So um, yeah, even yeah, Sven Botman uh, might be out even further. So they have a, a number of really big uh, pretty big injuries here um, for them. So it's probably going to be Callum Wilson through the middle. Um, so another guy that uh, probably injury prone. If we we're going to go, you know, square the circle, uh, bring yeah. things back. Um, how do you think Arsenal line up for this one? I think there's the the big question about the the midfield and what what yeah. do you do here? It's a huge question, right? And I think that um, especially off the back of that West Ham game, when you think about Newcastle and how they play through the midfield, you're like, oh, well, probably shouldn't start Jorginho at the six um, and throw Rice there, which kind of creates a little bit of a cascade because then if you have Rice at the six, you're probably going to see Havertz at the eight. And then that would mean Eddie Nketiah would be your starting striker. But mm-hmm. I think I think what's interesting here is that St. James Park last season, uh, Jorginho was very good. Um, he started that game, and that was maybe one of the best performances Arsenal had all season, uh, relative to the kind of you know the things that were going on and and the, yeah, the it was setting kind of a Jorginho Jaka double pivot where I thought both of them played really well together. Yeah, like the the performance through the midfield was like a big part of the reason why Arsenal won and, and won pretty easily, as I recall, uh, 2-0, but also never really threatened by Newcastle very much. So, you know, good old Mikel Arteta, does he look at that and say, this is another Jorginho game, put Rice at eight um, and give Kai Havertz a chance to be the outlet to get through the press? I think that could be what happens. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I, I think one of the things I wouldn't, you know, mind seeing is if we're gonna look at Kai Havertz through the middle, Trissard at the left eight. So Trissard, Odegaard, Rice. It, it may be a little bit weak, a little bit, you know, light. Um, but if we're gonna, you know, see something like that, that's something I, I wouldn't mind seeing someday. You know, uh, just to, to try out and figure out what what the team's got going. But we'll have a another really fun hour before kickoff where I'm sure everybody's gonna. <laughs> absolutely freak out because it's going to be, be able to, yeah. to play it's going to be mental um and there yeah the it, there are so many there are so many ideas and theories floating around about who should be tried where in midfield right now so it's it, i think a lot of people have strong opinions but that's a, that, only one guy do, gets paid for his yeah people do have strong opinions and i think that's a, a good spot to, to leave it thank you adam as always yeah, thanks. Uh, and now we have we have Newcastle, and then we get to play Sevilla midweek. So should be a fun week. Should be a very fun week. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye bye.